Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Hey, so it's been uh, a week now since we've last sat down for a recording. Actually, a week and a day, specifically. Slightly longer than our usual recording schedule. That's right. Yeah, yeah. What's up? Uh, I've been busy. I'm working on a new project. I'm trying to understand how cancer works. Turns out it's complicated. Yeah, I guess so. I, I guess we'll talk more about that in yeah, this episode. Yeah, for sure. It's really interesting. Yeah. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, so what, um, I guess first question, what prompted this interest in cancer specifically? Yeah, so cancer is a big problem, as it turns out. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the leading cause of death of Americans, causes one in four deaths uh, every year. That's that's responsible for 600,000 deaths a year. There are 1.5 or so million cancer deaths or cancer diagnoses each year, excuse me. So in terms of raw numbers, obviously, this is a huge deal. That's big, yeah. Yeah. Now, maybe a slightly more relevant question is, like, why is this something that I'm working on? Because my Mm -hmm. background is in physics. And to make a a very long story short, uh, there's a lot of research that's been ongoing in cancer, obviously, for many decades. Um, And the White House in the last six months or so of their time in office has decided that a major priority of the administration is to – jumpstart a number of cancer initiatives to try to unify and streamline and make more efficient and more aggressive and overall more effective the research program that's being run on cancer in the United States. And this was announced in the State of the Union address by yeah. the president, and it's being overseen by the vice president, who's particularly motivated to really do as much as as can be done on this. Uh, as you may know, his son died recently of brain cancer, and so he. Mm. This is this isn't just professional for him. This is personal. And um, so I've been working a little bit on some related research uh, that has is turning out to be really interesting. And we're still trying to figure out exactly what the scope of our part of the problem is going to be. Um, but that's taking up a lot of my spare time right now trying to understand what's going on with cancer, because it's honestly something that I've never studied before. And so you, you come to very quickly appreciate how complicated this is. It's I have yeah. to say, it's, it is the most complicated thing I think I've ever seen. And I, f- I feel like that says something if you've had to work on the LHC, that it's, yeah. <laughs> it's even more complicated <laughs> than that. Particle accelerator, yeah. Wow. So, so when you say this is the most complicated thing I've ever seen, are you talking about um, the biology around cancer? Are you talking about uh, treatment? Are you talking about data analysis of that stuff or kind of all of all of the above? Oh, gosh, yeah, all of the above. So yeah. I think one of the things that jumps out immediately is that cancer is not one disease. Cancer mm-hmm. is probably at least 100 diseases, and you could easily argue more. And the one thing that really unifies them as cancer is it's these cells that have various kinds of genetic mutations that make them grow and reproduce out of control. That's what makes a cancer a cancer. But there are so many, I mean, we you remember when we talked to Francesco a long time ago, he was the uh, the guy who dealt with genetics and he was explaining mm-hmm. to us about hidden Markov models. And, and I remember from those conversations just how complex a genome can be to deal with. There's so many different genes in it and they can express themselves in all these different ways and they can have very complicated interactions. And then they can have any number of other kinds of mutations that can also interact with each other in very tricky ways. And so you have just this huge proliferation of different kinds of 
cancers that all take place as a result of all the different types of genetic abnormalities that can happen in your cells. That episode was 11 months ago, almost a year. Yeah, time flies, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So, so cancer itself is really complicated. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of different directions you can hit this from. And that's what I've been primarily reading up on is what are the different ways that we are treating cancer right now and detecting it and preventing it, which is also complicated. And what is the strategy behind all of the different ways we can uh, treat it? So things like radiotherapy, uh, chemotherapy, those are uh, sort of the classic ones. Those have been around for decades, but there's Mm -hmm. more and more interesting and unique ways that we're thinking about treating it sort of in, in future iterations of cancer therapy. These are things like targeted treatment, immunotherapy. These are things that are more recently sort of gotten going in terms of the research and they hold a lot of potential, but they're not quite there yet. And so one of the challenges is trying to figure out if there are ways that we can accelerate those research processes while still maintaining as high of a standard of care as possible for the patients who, you know, would potentially be part of the trials and things like that. Do you have an idea of how much of what your team will be doing is thinking up different uh, biological treatments or um, alterations on biological treatments versus evaluating biological treatments that are already in existence? Oh, yeah. So almost entirely not actually thinking up biological treatments ourselves right. because we're not cancer. You're not biologists. So a lot of your research now is is in terms of, um, I guess, under trying to understand the biological treatment so that way you can understand maybe how to look at the data. Yeah, right now we're really coming up to speed and just getting used to the vocabulary and the methodologies and the way that things are done right now. Uh, and then hopefully soon we'll start to put on our data scientist hats, so to speak, and think about what tools there might be to help accelerate, like I said, the research process. How long have you been working on this research? And what have you learned from it, for example, about how cancer research has worked in the past, and maybe also how machine learning and and data science can help? The research on my end is in very early days. It's been maybe a, a week or two at this point. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But there are a few things that have jumped out at me just as a complete novice in this field that are really interesting. And you can, I can start to see how some of the things that I've encountered through physics and data science and things like that are relevant for the, I mean, it's, it's all science basically is what I'm saying. So I, I can see what science looks like when it's physics. And I can see that there's analogs in biological research as well. So, uh, and these are things that we've actually been talking about. And that wasn't by design on my part. This was just a coincidence. But let me give you a few examples. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really tricky about measuring progress in cancer research is, first of all, just defining what a metric is. Like, what's the thing that tells you whether you're making progress? And on the one hand, I think of an obvious one would be something like how many diagnoses are there each year or how many deaths and you want those numbers to be as low as possible. Mm-hmm. But alternatively, for something like pancreatic cancer, which has extremely low incidence of, of cures or um, having very successful uh, treatment options for pancreatic cancer, maybe something like reducing the overall number of deaths is not the only metric that you should be looking at. Maybe it's things right. like, oh, are we able to meaningfully extend people's lives, even if it's just by... Right? 
Yeah, even if it's just by a few months or a few years or they're qu- make, making sure their quality of life isn't suffering as they're uh, being treated. And that starts to get into issues of that are related to the survival analysis that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. So here's one example is you say something like, well, okay, for pancreatic cancer, maybe one of the metrics that we care about is the time between the uh, the diagnosis that you get and your eventual death, assuming that that the pan- that the patient dies, and we want that time to be as long as possible because we want you to have as long of a a good life after the diagnosis as as you can. But at the same time, we're pushing to try to have diagnoses come as early as possible because, in general, the earlier you diagnose a cancer, the easier it is to treat it, and the more likely you are to have a, a successful outcome. And so what if, suppose, you have a a situation where you're able to detect pancreatic cancer earlier, and then people aren't actually living any longer. It's just that you're, 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 you know, the starting line has now moved back. And so the person who, let's say they get pancreatic cancer and they're due to die when they're 40 years old, if you detect it at 38 years old and you say, okay, that, that time is two years, let's try to push that time out and make it longer. Um, and what that usually means is, okay, we're going to push from 40 years to 41 years. But what it can mm-hmm. also look like is we push from 38 years for the, the diagnosis down to 37. That's interesting. And you're still so, just living to 40. And so it looks like you're making progress because the that gap has increased from two years to three years, but yeah. has an increase in the right direction. And it seems like fundamentally the problem with that is that your metric is not measuring the state of the cancer, it's measuring the time from diagnosis, and diagnosis can change. Yeah, and this this is all over the literature, actually, especially in the history of cancer, trying to figure out what are the metrics that we're going to use for declaring success. So in the earlier part of the 20th century, they didn't really understand how cancer worked. And so for the case of breast cancer, there would be um, you know, so you'd have like a breast tumor. They surgeons would perform a mastectomy and remove the tissue, and there was this really fairly horrifying trend, where what happened basically is is there's cancer and it can either be localized in the tumor, and then removing a fairly limited amount of tumor tissue is going to take care of you, and that's right. one case. Or the other case can be that it's metastasized elsewhere on your body. And it's in your liver, or it's in your bones, or it's in your brain, and it doesn't matter how much of the tumor you remove, the patient is still going to die eventually. And they didn't totally understand that dichotomy early on. And so they, what they thought was just, if we get more aggressive with removing the tumor, then maybe the outcomes will be better. And so the surgeons had this way of thinking about it where the more aggressive I get with the surgery, that's actually me making progress. And so there are these, these surgeons who are figuring out ways that you could remove, you know, not just the breast tissue or the tumor, but you're removing muscles and ribs. And it was actually mm-hmm. a really disfiguring surgery, but it didn't have any impact on whether people lived longer. Either right. they did or they didn't. And it took a long time for them to figure that out. And it was because they were focusing on completely the wrong metric because they just didn't totally understand what they were doing. And that's where that's where metrics and numbers come in very useful because then you can detect oh the the intervention that we're doing is not changing the outcome uh, compared to the control group for example yeah but you need to be smart enough and thoughtful enough to mm-hmm. be 
asking the question in that way. And, you know, I think we've made huge amounts of progress in in that way. But it's something that you always have to be thinking about is, is this a metric that's actually going to get me in a in the direction that I think is better. And one of the other things that's really tricky about this is to flip this on its head a little bit is metrics surrounding prevention, because prevention can be one of the most powerful things for actually driving down things like the death rate and the overall diagnosis rate. But preventative care is, it's very hard to measure how much of an impact things are having because what you're trying to measure is cancer cases that don't happen. And that's its own kind of tricky. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that seems to be similar with measuring environmental uh, concerns. Like that's that's a variable that happens before the diagnosis, whether or not the, the diagnosis actually happens in an individual. And so it's kind of confounded by all of the noise of all of the other things. Like maybe maybe there's a product out there that is carcinogenic that some of the population is consuming or, or not or exposed to. For sure. And, and it's really complicated too because it's, I think I read somewhere that something like 90% of cancer cases can be traced to some kind of environmental cause, but the envir- mm. environmental cause typically happens decades before the cancer ever arises. And so it's very difficult to know in any specific way what kinds of carcinogens, you know, could be the most dangerous. Now, in some cases, it's really obvious things like uh, smoking, obviously. Yeah. But certainly things like, I don't know, eating red meat or drinking too much alcohol. These are things that people do you know, many, many times, only some of them get cancer. For any one person, it's impossible to say whether your cancer for sure was caused by behavior that you that you did or that you had many years ago. And it's certainly impossible to say whether any given glass of wine or steak was what caused you to get cancer, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And similarly, it's difficult to take the person who didn't end up getting cancer and say, ah, it was this preventative measure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, so that gets really tricky really that quickly tricky. as well. Um, and then I guess the other thing is trying to be sensitive also and think very carefully about what directions to put re- to push research in, especially clinical trials. These are the trials that have humans involved in them. And this gets into things like experimentation and causality and especially multi-arm bandit type problems where you're trying hey, to we talked about that. Yeah, they don't <laughs> they don't use this terminology, but it's something that you have to keep in mind is that for a lot of these trials, one of the things that can be really limiting in how quickly the trials move is just being able to recruit patients. And on the one hand, you're standing there thinking, you know, if we could just recruit patients faster then we would solve all these problems so much more quickly. On the other hand, the reason that patients don't participate in trials is because they want the standard care and the standard of care has been designed usually over many, many years. And it's the most effective thing that we're currently aware of for treating the particular type of cancer that they have. And so there's a good reason why the standard of care is what it is. The standard of care is just sort of the standard treatment for whatever type of cancer that they have. So it'll be, you know, surgery and then radiation and then this particular blend of chemotherapy or, and, It'll specify what the what the drugs are and how they should be administered and over what period mm-hmm. of time. And it sort of is all of the things that go into how you get treated for your specific cancer. And once you start to go off script of that and into experimental trials, the, the benefit, especially to the benefit to society as a whole, can be potentially quite large because it means that we find better 
treatment in the long run, hopefully, as a result of many of these trials. On the other hand, it's really... Yeah, not necessarily to the individual. Right. Right. So you have to be sensitive to that as well, that sure, it might be great if we can accelerate this research, but for any given person, you can see how that can be a really difficult thing to ask them to do. Yeah. In fact, as... um Spock said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. But that's not necessarily true for humans, right? If we were all hyperlogical beings and, and didn't weigh our own lives above uh, other people's lives, which we do for survival reasons, then we might be able to make faster progress. Um, but that's not how humans operate. And that's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, and there's, uh, that's not to say that all of the things that slow down research are necessarily deep or profound ethical things. And so that's one of the places where I think there's a lot of hope is that there's hopefully a lot of ways that, you know, things that are just sort of inefficient right now or data sources that aren't being integrated as effectively as they could be, people who aren't talking to each other who maybe would benefit from having more. Uh, information flow between parties. So there's a lot to think that, you know, we could find that uh, would help speed things up. And just to be clear, the initiative has a fairly, both an ambitious goal, but one that isn't crazy. I think one of the things that makes this research hard also is that in the 70s, Nixon declared a war on cancer and said, we're going to cure cancer by 1976. And Mm. it's going to be the government's gift to the country for its bicentennial. And I think that set expectations in a place that, uh, you know, we weren't able to deliver on completely, obviously, because they didn't totally understand what they were up against in, in a lot of ways. And on the one hand, you really admire that uh, bravado. But on the other hand, you have to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, you don't want to re- repeat that mistake. Let me put it that way. So yes, the goal of the initiative true. is to accomplish 10 years worth of research in five years. Mm. So both ambitious but hopefully realistic. I still have to figure out what 10 years worth of research is supposed to look like. (laughs) I don't, I'm not sure I totally know. Um, But these are the things that we're figuring out and we'll be working on for the next few months. And uh, obviously this is a really big project. Lots of people are working on it. um, And I will be working on it for a lot of my free time as well. So so we're going to once a week. Hopefully, I think you'll agree with me that this is a, a worthy cause to mm-hmm. slow down the podcast a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, I oh, mean, yeah, we'll, definitely. we'll still be posting uh, every week, but just not twice a week. <laughs> well, I mean, t- to be fair, most podcasts that I listen to post once every week to two weeks. Actually, some of them post once a month. So I don't know. I think we're already in a good place. Okay. Well, hopefully yeah. our listeners agree. Um, and if not... Sorry, I'm going to do it anyway. 